Well, good morning again. I have put on your table an outline to help you follow along. I don't have my four-man PowerPoint today, but hopefully you can follow along with the outline and see the scripture references. We're going to talk about a somewhat of a word study that I had done recently. The question to begin with is, what are you amazed by? What amazes you? I thought about that uh, because the word amaze is what we're going to look at, um, scriptural usage of it. But when I thought about what amazes me, one of the things that amazes me is how many different animals there are. I am fascinated by all the different animals in the world. There are over 20,000 different species of fish. There are 9,000 different kinds of birds, 6,000 reptiles, 4,500 mammals. 2,500 amphibians, and that doesn't include any kind of insects or spiders. Some people project that there's over 3 million different kinds of insects and spiders. That amazes me. What amazes you? Anybody? Have anything that amazes you? Well, the sky, the... Oh, it's fascinating the thing, and they're still finding more galaxies and things every day. It's amazing when you look at the creation, what the world is made out of. Our lesson today is going to center on a word study I did on this word that I'm calling a maze. Um, There's actually, the first word that I came across when I was doing some reading was marvel, and my strong concordance is based on the King James Version, so I went to my King James Bible and looked up the passage, and it used the word marveled as well. So then I went to the Strong's Concordance and looked up the word marveled to see what it meant. It meant the word marveled that was from the Greek word thamazo, and it means to marvel, to wonder, to be astonished or amazed. So when I went to the concordance and looked it up, it was I found that it was used, that exact word was used 46 times in the New Testament. And that's not counting all of the different variations of the word with similar meanings, because in Greek, a lot of times the words are just a little different that have a lot of different meanings. But that exact word was used 46 times. So we can see it was used quite a bit in the New Testament. Almost all of the usages were about Jesus in conjunction with being people being amazed at his teaching, being amazed at his miracles, or things similar to that. And so as I thought about that, I looked at all the places, but there's three places where it has a different meaning. But as we begin, I thought we would look at the overall context of just um, where, where that was used. And we, I thought I would just start by looking at some of the uses in Matthew. So if you want to turn to Matthew... We're going to just flip through real quick and just see some of the usages of this word, thamazo, or to marvel or be amazed. Starting in chapter 9, Matthew 9, verse 8, will be the first usages. And it's when Jesus healed a paralyzed man. And he got up, in verse 7 it says, and he went home. And then in verse 8 it says that when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. That's the New American Standard Version, awestruck. And that's that word, amazo. They were marveled or they were amazed. Flip over to chapter 15. 
verse 31. Again, there's another healing going on. Verse 30 tells us that they were bringing those who were lame and crippled, blind, mute, many other. They were laying them at Jesus' feet. And verse 31 says, So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. So that you can see they were still being amazed by his healing. Chapter 21 is another usage. 21 verse 20. This is where Jesus was in the morning. He was returning to the city. It said he became hungry. He was walking by. He saw a fig tree and it did not have any figs on it. It had only leaves on it only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Jesus cursed it. And verse 20 says, seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? Chapter 22, there's another use. It's 22, verse 22. This is when the Pharisees were trying to trick him and they were asking him about the poll tax. And Jesus, in his wisdom, that's when he said, Render unto Caesars what is Caesars, and to God the things that are God. And verse 22 says, In hearing this, they were amazed. And they were amazed at his wisdom. Verse 27, there's another usage of the word. 27, verse 14. This is when he was standing before Pilate and he was being um, accused and, and he chose not to speak. And verse 14 says, and he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed at him. So these are just usages of the word and... Matthew alone about being amazed. So you can kind of get the context of what the most, most of the time when this word was used, it was being used about Jesus. But within this 46 times, there's three times that the word is not used about Jesus, but it's used of him, where it says Jesus was amazed. And that's what we're going to look at, because that intrigued me. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the creator and sustainer of the universe, was amazed. So we're going to look at that. The three usages are Matthew 8.10, Luke 7.9, and Mark 6.6. 6. Now the usage in Matthew 8.10 and 7.9 are parallel verses, so they're the same story. So in fact, there are really only two times that Jesus was amazed, or used this word, marveled, or amazed, or astonished. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So the first place we're going to look at is Luke 7. Luke 7, the first 10 verses, we're going to see where, what amazes, that's the title of the lesson, what amazes Jesus. Just the sound of that intrigues me because when you think about Jesus Christ being Lord and God, that he could even be amazed is a little bit intriguing. What amazes Jesus? So let's read the first ten verses of Luke 7. And this is the story of the centurion's servant. It says in verse 7, beginning verse 1, When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. 
When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And he was, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in all of Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So that's the first usage of the word. Jesus was amazed at this man's faith. Now as we get into the story and, and look at the context and the setting, we see that the story begins with the words, when he had completed all his discourse. That obviously, if you look back at what was going on before this, refers to the Sermon on the Mount. Luke has just shared that in chapter 6. So when he finished this great discourse, he went to Capernaum. And if you read a little bit about Capernaum, you'll see that it was a lake city. A lake city. It was the main headquarters of Jesus during his public ministry. He returned there often. He would go back to Capernaum. Capernaum does not exist today. Has anybody been to Israel and seen where Capernaum was? I don't know. I was told as I read this that only thing that's there is a synagogue and a few houses. And if you go back in the Bible and look at Matthew 11:23, you'll see that Jesus pronounced the curse on Capernaum, too, for their unbelief. And that's why it was destroyed. But in Jesus' day, it was a lovely town. According to tradition, it was the home of Peter. Um, and Jesus spent a lot of time there, perhaps probably even in Peter's home. But it says as he begins to enter Capernaum that we are told that there was a centurion slave um, whose, whose slave was sick. We're not even told the centurion's name. We don't know a whole lot about him. We know a little bit about him just from the fact that the title says he was a centurion. What was a centurion? It was a Roman guard. And since centurion comes from the word century, which means a hundred, he was in charge of a hundred men. He had a garrison of a hundred soldiers under his command. So we know that he was a man who was not just a lowly private, he was more or less a captain in the Roman army. Um, if you go back in history and read about the Roman government and the times there, you'll see that they, you know, as they ruled the land, they put their garrisons of people throughout the population areas to control the people, to collect the taxes and things like that. So this Roman centurion was probably in charge of this area to collect the taxes and to keep, to keep the control. So we know that he had some power there. Um, they weren't always uh, natural Roman citizens. As I read the commentaries on this, I found that a lot of time what the Romans would do is they would take an alien that was living in the land and they would make them, put them in charge so they didn't have to send one of their own Roman people over there. They would just make, put this alien in charge and give him uh, you know, authority. 
So sometimes they were actually even considered traitors to the people that lived there. So they weren't naturally someone that the people of the area would look to and admire. Um, but we're going to see that that's a little bit different in this case. And we're told that the Roman officer's slave was sick. The word rendered slave here is the word pious, P-A-I-S. It is rendered servant in some versions. New American Standard, the version I use, it's rendered slave. But when you look up the meaning of that word, it actually literally means young child. So most of the commentaries believe that in all likelihood it was probably a child that was born of a slave. So it was a young slave, soon to be slave. And we know that the slave was sick. He was sick unto death. In the account in Matthew 8, if you read the parallel version, he calls it paralysis and said the slave was in much pain. So many scholars believe that it was some type of rheumatoid um, fever or something like that that usually ended in death. Whatever it was, we know that he was very ill. He was ill unto death. And in all likelihood, he was probably going to die without, without help. So there's something as you read this that's going on that's not typical on several levels. This is not an ordinary Roman officer. Roman officers didn't normally have great relationships they, with the Jewish people. They were typically ruthless, um, heartless. But we, as you read this story, you see, read this as being a compassionate man, a ruler. Our text said that the slave was highly regarded by his master. Most of the time, the slave and the master's relationships weren't that great either. Whether they were military or civilian, they did not normally regard a slave as being uh, much more valuable than an animal. If you read the writings of the time, the Greek philosopher Aristotle said, there could be no friendship between inanimate things, not even towards a horse or an ox or a slave. So you can see most of the times there was not a great relationship. Another Roman writer of biblical times said that the only difference between a slave and a beast was that the slave talked. So you can see that there was not a lot of uh, normal relationships between slaves and masters. But this centurion wasn't like that. He was a compassionate man. He didn't get that stereotype. He was a seasoned and capable fighting man, a leader of, of 100 soldiers. But he had a deep compassion for this young slave that was sick and dying. There's something else that's not typical, and that's the relationship between the Jews and this Roman soldier. The, the Romans were Gentiles. And the Gentiles and the Jews didn't normally get along that well. Um, one, because uh, they were Gentiles, the Jews were the chosen people. But two, because the Rome, Roman soldier was enforcing the you know, subjection of the people to, to the Roman authorities. So we can see that there was a lot of, this wasn't very typical. Verse 3 says that the centurion sent the Jewish elders to Jesus for this request. So he had a relationship with these Jewish leaders. Verse 4 tells us that the Jewish elders held the centurion in high regard. They even said they considered him worthy for Jesus to grant this miracle. We are told that he even built the Jews a synagogue. So again, it's no ordinary Gentile Roman soldier. Now, in verse 6, we're told that Jesus responds to the elders' request that he come and save the servant child and he starts out on his way. As he neared the house, the centurion sent friends out to meet him. He had already given them instructions of what to say. If you look at the end of verse 6, you can see 
again, the instructions that he said, he, he told his friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I do not consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does this. And this is the point where Jesus turns to the people around him and he says that it, he marveled, he was amazed, he was astonished, he was awestruck at what this at this man's faith. And says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when I dwelt on that, meditated on that, not in all of Israel have I found such great faith. What does all of Israel include? Does it leave anything out? What about the disciples? He's saying that this man's faith was greater than the disciples' faith. I guess that's not really that unusual because a few chapters later he actually turned to the disciples and said, you men of little faith. So, but this man, who was not Jewish, who had not been taught by him directly, he said that he had more faith than all of Israel. And he was amazed at that. Now, we know that there's more to it, because if you go to the parallel passage in Matthew 8, after he says this, after he turns to the crowd and says this, then he makes a statement that's not recorded in Luke. It says, many shall come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we know from reading the, that passage and the parallel passage that there's more to it than just what we're looking at in Luke because it's, he's talking, he's, he's giving a hint of the fact that the gospel is going to go out to more than the Jews. He's going to incorporate the Gentiles into it. The sons of the kingdom would be the descendants of Abraham and they're not all going to be saved. So this was a shocking statement that was made to the listening Jews here. But after Jesus gave this somber message, he said, let it be done. As you have believed, and the servant was healed that very hour. But the point I want to dwell on is, is the fact that Jesus said, was amazed by this man's faith. I wanted to meditate on the thought of a faith that amazes Jesus. What makes up a faith that amazes Jesus? I want to have that kind of faith, don't you? Don't you want to have a kind of faith that amazes Jesus? So what is it that makes that up? Well, from this passage alone, I think there's probably a whole lot more that we can say. But from this passage, I came up with four elements of a great faith. And the first one is that a great faith is a humble faith. Men of great faith are humble men. The more I grow as a Christian, the more I realize the need for humility in our world and in the Christian life. And as I dwell on what's going on in our world today, do you see a lot of humility in the world today? It doesn't seem like it. In fact, that if you read 2 Timothy 3, it says, In the end times, last days, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, and it goes on. And that's kind of what I see when I look around. Even in the church, though, sometimes I feel like we don't really have a really great multitude of humble people. And I don't know if that's an American thing. I think America sometimes prides itself on having arrogance and pride. Uh, that, that might be part of our downfall. But 
I think we need to realize the importance of humility. The centurion didn't even feel worthy to have Jesus come to his house. That's why he sent the elders. He felt like the elders. Who was, who was actually, you know, had more faith? The centurion or the elders that he sent? The centurion did. But he, he didn't even feel that worthy. He sent the elders to Jesus. They made a comment that this man was worthy to have Jesus perform this miracle and heal his servant. The elders said that. They thought this man was worthy. You know, they listed all the great things he did. He built the synagogue. You know, he was very worthy. But he didn't feel that way. The man, the centurion, was not arrogant. He was very humble. That's why he sent the elders. So as I dwelt on this idea of humility and great faith, that, that human, humble are humble men, I thought about the view that Hollywood gives us. You know, think about what we watch in the movies. Is it does, definitely doesn't um, portray humility as a virtue, does it? It's more of a weakness. And think about all the great action movies that I used to watch as a young person. They're all usually arrogant, prideful people. So we don't we don't get it from the world, that's for sure. So then I dwelt on the Bible and thought, well, is, is this true throughout the Bible? And I, I just kind of gave it a little self-test and I thought about to myself what, who was the greatest man in the Old Testament who, if you had to name somebody in the Old Testament you would think was one of the greatest men of faith who would you name Abraham, Abraham. Moses, Moses. That's, that's just who I thought of right off the bat and I think the Bible portrays Moses as being one of the really really great men of the Bible and I came across a passage in Numbers 12.3 that says now the man Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. So when we think of the great man of faith, Moses, the Bible says that he was more humble than any man on the face of the earth. Then I thought about the New Testament. Who was one of the, who we would call one of the greatest men of faith in the New Testament? John the Baptist? Paul? That's who I thought of. I thought of the Apostle Paul. When I think about who wrote all the New Testaments and all of the what he did. And, and Paul said of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. In Ephesians 3, 8, he said, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. So you can see Paul didn't think of himself very highly. He had a lot of humility. We know John the Baptist you know, said, I must decrease and he must increase. He didn't think too highly of himself. He knew his role. And then I thought, you know, who's the prime example? Who's the ultimate example of humility? Jesus Christ. In the thought of Philippians chapter 2. You all know I love Romans 8. That's where I've been teaching the last little bit. My second greatest chapter in the Bible for me is Philippians chapter 2. So I'm, I'm contemplating starting to try to memorize that one. Um, Philippians chapter 2 is a great... You know, you know, it's, the, it's all about Christ, what he gave up. You know, being equality with God, did not consider it something to be grasped, but emptied himself and became obedient, became obedient all the way to the cross. And if you think about, you know, how humble Christ was, what he gave up, what he was, but what he set aside for others. That's the ultimate example of humility. So the first thing, a man or woman of great faith is a humble man. The second thing I saw from this passage was a great faith believes in the power and authority of God's word. The centurion, I don't know how, but somehow he came to a point where he believed in Christ's divine authority. He called him Lord twice in this passage. 
This was more than just a courtesy, I believe. He understood the authority of Christ's word. And we know that because he tells us. He said, I myself am a man under authority. And I know what it is to say to this servant, do this. And he does it. Or come and he comes. Or go when he goes. I know what it is to say. What, you know, and it, it happens. And he said, I know that you, all you have to do is speak the word. You don't have to come and lay hands. You don't have to anoint with oil. You don't have anything you have to do other than speak the word. And from all the context, it's not like he was grasping at straws or thinking, I've tried everything, I don't know what else to do. He knew the power that God had in his word, that Jesus Christ was somehow divine. And we don't understand all of that, where he got that faith, but he, he had it. And then I thought about other men and women in the Bible that are examples of faith who believed in the power and authority of God's word, even when it didn't make sense. I thought about Abraham and Sarah. You know, the covenant that God made with Abraham when he was old and Sarah when they were old and that they were going to have a child and they were going to have, you know, this multitude of descendants. And he saw no signs for it for 17 years after that covenant was made. He went 17 years with no sign that God was going to honor that. But the Bible says he didn't waver. It says he was fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. So he stood in faith on God's word. One that I think sometimes I glance over is probably one of the greatest examples of faith in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, is Noah. When, when you think about what Noah went through, if you read verses, you know, chapter 6, 7, and 8 about the flood, you know, sometimes, do you ever get discouraged and think there's not a lot of Christians left? There was none. It was his family alone. There was no church that he could go to and fellowship with believers. It said the whole world had turned aside. It was just Noah and his family. You know, we think even in the remote parts of Africa or wherever, there's still some Christians that can gather together. And he had nobody but his family. And then it says God told him to build a boat. And it was going to rain he didn't know what rain was from all indications that it hadn't rained before. They didn't even know what rain was. Can you imagine the laughter and the ridicule that Noah went through? And the Bible says in Genesis 6.22 that thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did it. That's believing in God's word. That's trusting in God's word. Some people think that because God spoke directly to them that they had it easier than us. I don't believe that. You know, when you think about uh, what we have, it's really much, much greater because we have the printed word in black and white that we can flip the pages to, we can memorize it, we can study it, we can go back and forth. When you think about something, you can actually ask my wife this one, but it would test it. But if somebody tells you something, and a few years later, do you always remember what it is or you get it kind of mixed up in your mind? Um, I'm probably so sure I do that a lot. But you can't do that with the Bible because it's right there. You can always go back to it and refer to it. We have the written word of God that we can believe in. The power and authority of God's word is demonstrated by our obedience to it. So we have the fact that great faith is a humble faith. And a great faith believes in the authority of God's word. And number three, a great faith has unselfish motives. This centurion's request was not one of selfishness, was it? He wasn't asking for something because he needed this 
servant to be able to do the work on the farm, he, he felt compassion, genuine compassion for this young slave servant. And he wanted him healed. He just felt out, was out of compassion. Reminded me of Philippians 2.3 that says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with, with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than themselves. One way I thought about this is to measure my own selfishness is sometimes even in my own prayers. If I examine my own prayers, sometimes I can realize when I'm being more selfish than others. Now, it's not wrong to pray for yourself, but if most of your prayers are about yourself, that might be an indication that you're a little bit being selfish because we are commanded to pray for others, to intercede for others. We should be not concerned totally about ourselves and what's going on in our own life. A great man of faith, when you read it in the Bible, about all the great men of faith, their world did not revolve around themselves. It revolved around God's will and other people. A great leader is deeply concerned with others. And, and, and a leader in general, outside of biblical leadership, you just think about our world leadership and think about that attribute. Are the leaders that we have today concerned about others or are they concerned mostly about themselves? I think that's one of the deep problems we have in politics with our country is that all they're worried about is getting reelected. You know, when you think about our forefathers, what they did, the sacrifices they made for future generations, and what we're concerned with today is the immediacy of my well-being, my welfare, and, and we're not immune from that either. Even the voters tend to vote sometimes on their pocketbooks or whatever's best for them and not other people. The Bible says that a great man of faith are not concerned about themselves, but they're unselfish. The fourth thing that I see from this is that great faith is a simple and sincere faith. And what I mean by that is, in the story of the centurion, there's nothing complicated about this man's faith. Did he understand the doctrines of Calvinism and all the different elaborate theological words that we can use today in the Bible? He didn't know any of that, did he? Now, don't misunderstand me. Those things can be very important, and we are to study to show ourselves the proof. The Bible says that. But in all actuality, when you read the Bible and you read the men of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it's not talking about how much knowledge they had or how much they understood doctrine. It's about their action and trust and obedience in God. And this man did that. It was simple. And it was sincere. He, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't based on his knowledge. It was based on his obedience and his belief and trust. And I thought about, you know, the fact that we need to, you know, do we always understand everything? No. We have to just believe and trust and do what the Bible says, even when we don't understand it. Even when, like Abraham and Sarah, it's laughable. They trusted the Lord that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. Even like Noah. You don't really know what rain is, but God said, build a boat, I'm going to build it. This man acted upon the fact that he believed God's word and he was divine and he could heal and he asked him for it and he believed it. And we could go into a lot of discussion on that and talk about that. Uh, but I really want... I'm kind of throwing two lessons in here. One, because I really want to draw the contrast to the other example. So this is the first example 
of Jesus Christ being amazed at someone's faith. He was himself was amazed. Now, we're going to flip over to Mark chapter 6 and look at the second example where Jesus was amazed. Mark chapter 6, and we'll read the first six verses. And we're going to contrast this to a faith that amazes Jesus. We're going to see a different time where Jesus was amazed. Starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 6, it says, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. And he wondered, or he marveled, or he was amazed at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. So we see in these verses a, a really direct contrast to what we saw in Luke. In Luke we find Jesus being amazed at one man's faith. And here we find Jesus being amazed at their lack of faith. Here we see the power of unbelief on display. On this account in Jesus' life, he returns to another familiar city, which was Nazareth, Nazareth, his hometown. This is where Joseph and Mary lived after returning to Egypt. The people are impressed with his teaching. They know his background. They know his upbringing. They knew he had no formal training. He had not been to rabbinical school or seminary. He had no more special training than any other young Jewish man would have been, would have had. And yet he taught with such wisdom and authority that they were amazed and they had heard of all of his miracles. And yet they wondered where he got his wisdom and his power. They said, isn't this the carpenter? But this is not the first time this has happened. Jesus had returned to Nazareth before after his temptation in the wilderness. And the response to him was very similar. I want to flip over real quick to Luke chapter 4 and show you what happened the last time this he returned there. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, gives us an example really similar to this. It says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in the synagogues, and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as it was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then it says, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That gives us an indication of what he might have been saying to them, even in our passage that we're looking at in Mark. And in verse 28 of this passage in Luke, it says they were filled with rage 
and they led him off to a cliff to throw him off. That's how mad they got at him. And I had to, I put that in there because it, I think you needed to understand, because it says they were amazed at his teaching, but then it says they took offense at him. Well, I think now you can see why they may have took an offense at him, because he probably had just read or said something similar to what he had done in his account in Luke. So we see in these verses several things about unbelief. We see how unbelief blurs the obvious, blinds the excuse, and blocks the blessing. First, that unbelief blurs the obvious. Our text says that when Jesus taught in the synagogue, the people were astonished. Where did he get his wisdom? Where did he get his miraculous powers? They didn't deny he was special, that he taught like no one else they had ever seen. But where did it come from? You know, even I thought about the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus recognized where it came from. It says that I know that you have to be, you know, you're, you're, you had to come from God because no one else could do what you, what you have done. These people saw all the miracles, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't acknowledge that because their unbelief blurred the obvious. Does that happen today when you see people that are unbelievers and they are the gospel is shared with them in a direct way and you make these great arguments and it's like they just don't get it, do they? Because their, their, their vision is blurred. They don't have clear vision. And their unbelief blurs their vision. People of his hometown had the same problem. They could not see the logical conclusion because they refused to believe. It should have been obvious, but it wasn't obvious because their vision was blurred. The second thing that unbelief shows is that unbelief rationalizes and makes excuses. What was their excuse? What was the people of Nazareth's excuse? What did they talk about? What do they want to talk about? His family. And they knew his family. And we know your, your mom, your dad. We know your brothers and your sisters are here with us. You're just one of us, you know. You know, familiarity. And I thought about that. I thought about Christian children that are raised in the church. Sometimes they are raised with all the privileges, just like these Jews had all the privileges. And sometimes because of their unbelief, it's all blurred. It's all, they make excuses and rationalizations and they don't. The familiarity blinds them to the truth. And we know that Christ is the one that opens the eyes of the blind. But unbelief, it's because of that unbelief. Why do people make excuses? Do they really believe them? They believe them and rationalize them away, but why do they believe them? Because they don't want to believe them. It's their unbelief that makes excuses. Do people make excuses today? Anybody tried to witness recently and heard excuses? My wife had the opportunity to talk to some Jehovah Witnesses a couple weeks ago, and actually they kept coming back. And, of course, if you ever talk to Jehovah Witnesses, you know that they want to stray and go all these different places and talk about all these different topics. And she kept bringing them back to who is Jesus Christ. And finally, the older lady that had been in for so long says, we can talk about something else. And she kept, just kept saying, there is nothing else. What's important is what you believe about Jesus Christ. And don't unbelievers almost always do that? Do they want to talk about, well, if there really is a God, then why is there so much poverty in the world? Or why does God allow this to happen? Or whatever. They want to make rationalizations and excuses because they really don't believe. They don't want to believe. So 
you can see that unbelief rationalizes and makes excuses. The third thought, thing I saw from this is that unbelief blocks the blessing. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus could do no miracles but heal a few sick people. It's interesting that it says he could do no miracles. It's not that he would do no miracles. It says that he could do no miracles. And I had to think about that. Do you think that means that Jesus literally could not do a miracle? Have you thought about that? Was Jesus' hands tied? He could not do a miracle there. Anybody have thoughts on that they want to share? Because of their unbelief, he could do no miracles there. Now, did Christ perform miracles sometimes based on people's faith and belief? Yes. But did he sometimes do miracles when they didn't believe? Yes. So, was he bound by their belief or unbelief? Not according to the rest of Scripture. I think what it means, as I read through this and thought about it and meditated on it, I think what it means, when Jesus chose to do miracles, he chose specifically when he was going to do them. I mean, he chose not to do them at times. In fact, when the Pharisees and people were seeking a sign, what did he say? You know, I'm not going to reward you by entertaining you and giving you a sign. You're only get the, going to get the sign of Jonah. So he, he chose when he was going to do them, and he, he did them specifically to bring glory to God and to um, complement his ministry, to bring faith to people. But when he knew that it wasn't going to work or when it wasn't going to bring faith, most of the time he chose not to do them. And when you think about that, you think about all the different, when you go back, and I, as I did this, I went back to all the times he was healing people and doing things and it was really, did Jesus actually go out and seek out people to heal? Not usually. Usually it was people bringing people to him. Wherever he went, people were bringing them to him. But it looks like in this passage, people weren't doing that. Because I don't think they didn't, because they didn't believe, because they didn't have faith in him, they didn't give him, you know, they, did, they weren't really looking for him for healing the people. So there probably wasn't people coming. They weren't, they weren't coming in groves to bring people to It said he, he didn't heal very many people, but he did say he healed some. So I think some people brought people to Jesus. So I think for the most part, the reason he didn't do a lot of miracles there was people weren't seeking miracles. And that's where I came up with that little phrase, unbelief blocks the blessings. When you don't believe, you don't seek out the, the miracle, do you? Do you ask for things and seek God to perform miracles if you believe He's not going to do them? I mean, I don't pray for things that I don't think God's going to do. So I think that's what, when we think about the blessings that God gives to us, it's because we're seeking those blessings and those miracles. And the people here weren't doing that. So it reminded me of the verse in Matthew 7, 6, where Jesus said, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under your feet and tear, turn and tear you to pieces. Now, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their unbelief and was hardened. So as we close, I want to, to just dwell on the fact that of this contrast for a minute, of these two instances in the life of our Lord, where he marveled, where he was astonished or amazed or awestruck, one by the great faith of a Gentile soldier and one by the familiar people of his hometown. And that contrast. And then how do we apply that 
to our lives today. And lest you think that because we are believers and we're not unsaved, there is no um, context for application. I think we would be wrong. Because if you think about belief, what is belief? How do we demonstrate belief? Obedience. Exactly right. And when you read the book of James, you'll see that driven home very well. James said, you show me your faith and I'll show you my works. There's a lot of passages that talk about that. So we demonstrate our belief by our obedience. Do we fail in our obedience? So that means that there are times in a believer's life where we doubt, where we don't trust God. What happens when we complain? Is that lack of faith? Of course it is. Because we're saying, God, I know better than you. You shouldn't be bringing this circumstance into my life. You're not obeying the scripture. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that testing of my faith produces endurance. So anytime we are disobedient in any way, we have a lack of faith. So the contrast and the challenge as I read this was, to myself, was, I want to have a great faith that amazes Jesus. I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to let my familiarity with church. I don't want to let the, you know, the habitual habits I get into of playing church and playing a Christian come between me and being a great man of faith. I thought about, you know, Abraham, you know, or actually Moses was one of the examples I used earlier. Of a man of great faith. But did Moses have a time of disbelief? Yes. And he didn't go into the promised land because of it. I thought about Noah's. The people of Noah's day refused to believe. And they were all destroyed in the flood. So the Bible is full of unbelief. Christians and un- non-Christians. It's not just the story of believers and unbelievers. I think about Aaron. Refused to believe. God led the people into idol worship. And all disobedience is unbelief. And we go through the whole Bible and see this contrast of belief and unbelief, whether it be between believers and unbelievers or whether it be a, a Christian in times of belief and doubt. So the challenge that I leave you with today is the, to dwell on the fact that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, creator of the whole universe, can be amazed by a man's faith. And our striving that we should have to live a life in complete trust and obedience, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we don't understand it, just obey it and amaze our Lord with our faith. I tend to be on the other side. I probably am amazing him by my unbelief. I, I probably, he probably looks at me and says, look at all I've done for you and you still keep falling down. He's probably amazed at my lack of faith, and I don't want to do that. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you are a a God who gave us your written word, that we should not go through our life and time here on earth without any doubt of how you want us to live. Father, you have been very clear, even though we may not always understand everything, Father, that is in it, we know the essence of it, that we are to trust you, that you are our Heavenly Father, that we are to put our complete trust and faith in you. And Father, you will reward us, Father, 
by our obedience, by blessing our lives, Father, giving us a joy that only you can give. And Father, that is something that we don't want to ever take for granted. May we never become too familiar with you and the things of church and Christianity that we don't have that one-on-one relationship with you that you so strongly desire. Thank you for saving us, for shedding Christ's blood for us. May we pay you back by a life of obedience and a willful heart. In Jesus' name.